I'm Michael Shoulder. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. What we want to do is create a space in which young men of color and young men generally don't have to feel as if for me to be respected and admired in my community, I've got to act a certain way. That was Barack Obama last week in a town hall meeting with Stephen Curry, addressing what is often called toxic masculinity. A lot of the violence and pain that we suffer in our communities arises out of young men who nobody's said to them what it means to be respected. And so they're looking around and, well, I guess being respected means I might shoot you or I can make you back down or I can disrespect you and there's nothing you can do about it. And that is a self-defeating model for being a man. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, an alternate model for being a man from an unexpected source. Heck yeah, I'm a feminist. That voice comes from inside an all-male prison, where some inmates are taking a deep dive into the liberating power of feminism. I think it's important that men talk about feminism explicitly, talk about patriarchy explicitly, and identify as feminists. It takes courage to spread feminist ideas in a community of convicted male felons. This is feminist literature that we're reading. Um, this is a feminist perspective. And dudes get crazy. I've had dudes who like got like in my face like they were gonna fight me. I've had facilitators get in my face like they were gonna fight me. This rare immersive experience behind prison walls has been made possible by my guests, two ambitious and insanely curious journalists. After a year and a half of reporting, they have emerged with a perspective-changing documentary, now streaming on CNN.com. It's called The Feminist on Cell Block Y. Emma Lacey Bordeaux, Roe editor, editor at CNN's DC Bureau, a key position. Emma, you look at every piece from Washington, D.C., all the political coverage, does not get on the air unless you say it is ready to get on the air. So, Emma Lacey Bordeaux, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. This is really exciting. Well, same here. And on the phone, Emma, your partner on this incredible documentary is Contessa Gales, who was until recently a producer at CNN in New York and now has taken the big entrepreneurial and editorial leap and gone off on her own. And Contessa, you have your own independent production company, which is called... Coco Motion Pictures. And thank you for having me. I love that name. So tell me how you came up with that name. It's actually the name of a disco song. (laughs) And it kind of evokes for me all of the things that I hope to bring forth with the projects that I do now as an independent filmmaker and nonfiction storyteller, which is centering people of color and showing them in motion in their daily lives. So Contessa and Emma, the feminist on cell block Y, 75 minutes I watched this film and I never thought I could spend 75 minutes immersed in a prison and wind up so uplifted. (laughs) But I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Contessa had this idea to 
really just follow naturally along as these guys were engaged in the conversation, engaged in this exploration of their lives, who they are as people. And, you know, you're not the only person that I've heard that from. I've heard that from a lot of folks and folks who don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what happens in prisons. Because, of course, in our society, there's some groups of people who have a lot of exposure to the criminal justice system. And then there's other groups that really they don't have loved ones involved or entangled. And I think that's one of the amazing sort of undercurrents that the documentary provides is really just for people who don't spend much time considering the criminal justice system, it is an unusual and very intimate look at one particular group of guys. Maybe you can give us the description, Contessa. For those of us who haven't seen the documentary yet, tell us what it is to teach feminism in this particular prison. So I would say that the film, The Feminist on Cell Block Y, follows Richard Edmund Vargas, who is an individual who's incarcerated in an all-male prison in Soledad, California, and who co-founded a rehabilitation program that he leads and co-leads with other inmates. So it's an inmate-led rehabilitation program. Patriarchy, as the guys will learn today, is the biggest hindrance to our success. We all had these great dreams and stuff when we were little kids, but at some point it was more important for us to be tough. It was more important for us to not back down or whatever, to buy into toxic masculinity. And I'm willing to assert that everybody in that room, including myself, put what the patriarchal expectations that the world had on us before our own goals. The whole premise of it and the focus of it is to get guys to learn about systems of patriarchy and to be able to identify the ways that it shows up in their communities and society and connect the dots between those systems and their own behavior. Toxic masculine behavior is what they call it, or toxic masculinity, and how that led them, or in part, it contributed to them ending up in prison and how to unlearn the ways that they were taught about what it means to be a man, what society says a man is supposed to do and not do, and the phrases that we all know, boys don't cry, deny their feelings. Who here has heard the phrase, be a man? We all have, right? The idea is that if you're not a man, you're a, a girl or a woman. And the inference being that somehow that's less than. You have to act a certain way to be a man. And uh, that's something that led me to prison. Which exchange do you think captures what they mean in this program by patriarchy and why it is so necessary to correct the patriarchy or to eliminate it? I think that Richie is used to hearing the feedback that there is a traditional definition of what patriarchy means. Some of the guys in the prison reference the Bible when they say that patriarchy is a good thing and it just means that a man is taking care of what he's supposed to take care of, whether that's the household, his family. And he is quick to make the distinction that They're not saying that it's wrong for a man to be in a position of authority or power, but that it is wrong to assume that you should be in a position of power simply because you are male. People often say, what's the difference between toxic masculinity and patriarchy? Toxic masculinity is what I'm doing just with my masculinity on the day to day. But when everybody 
on my block, everybody in my city, everybody in my state, everybody in my country is feeling that to some level, we have what's called a patriarchal society, which is not to be mixed up with the more traditional definition of the word patriarchy, which means like male leadership. Certainly we're not saying that it's bad to be a male and be a leader. We're just saying that you don't deserve to be a leader just because you're male. And that that sense of entitlement is kind of what leads to a lot of the abuses of power, the disproportionate distribution of power and objectification and all of these other things. I want to get the backstory because I remember talking to you years ago about <laughs> one of the main characters in this film yeah. who was not in this prison when you started following him. So, Emma, how many years ago did you start telling me about this guy named Rich? <laughs> I had interviewed this. He was really a kid at the time. He was a teenager. And he was editor of his high school newspaper. He went to a high school in the Valley outside of L.A., downtown L.A., and for Valentine's Day, he had this idea to print like a biological diagram like you would see in biology class of a vagina on the front page. I think it says something like ending shame around nature's gift or something like that. The administration at his high school, I mean, they were outraged. And so they confiscated the papers. And the L.A. Times wrote it up and they interviewed Richard and he said something like, if the administration considers vaginas to be obscene, this proves my point and <laughs> they violated my First Amendment rights. And I thought, wow, like, <laughs> what an amazing kid. So I interviewed him. We stayed in touch on Facebook. And over the years, you know, we weren't really in close communication, but I saw that he had gotten into some trouble. I wasn't really sure what it was about. Then I saw that he had somehow released a rap album from prison, which I thought was really pretty remarkable. How many years after this 16-year-old high school piece on? It must have been like seven years, maybe. But then I was working on a series about the different ways in which American criminal justice was changing. And so I thought maybe this kid wants to talk to me again. <laughs> and at this point, he's probably, what, around 23? Um, yeah, he must have been 24, 25, something like that. And so anyway, I reached out. His wife was monitoring and posting on his Facebook account on his behalf. And she talked me through how to set up a prison phone account. From the documentary, I know yeah. that... I think she said they started dating just shortly before he committed the crime that got him into prison. And so just let us know what that crime was. Yeah, so Richard committed a couple armed robberies, was part of a couple armed robberies of drugstores. And I guess part of what's heartbreaking about Richie's story, but also uplifting, he talks about how he was an artsy kid and that wasn't helping him survive in his climate. How does that relate to what the lessons are in this prison program? Well, in the film, Richie even goes back further than the point where he commits the robbery. And he starts around middle school is where he kind of says was a turning point for him. How I ended up here ultimately started with my insecurity. I was like a weird artsy kid and that was cool with me in elementary school. But when I got to middle school, my peers had bought into this idea of this is what it is to be a black man. And it was the hyper-violent, 
hyper-masculine. And immediately, like, I picked up on the fact that that's how I was supposed to be. And that my self, like, my artsy self, that wasn't good enough. So I started hanging out with gang members. I started getting high, and I pretty much got high. I got high every day I could from when I was 12 until I came came to prison at 19. Middle school, you know, the, the social norms start falling into place as far as how boys are supposed to be versus how girls are supposed to be. And he received a lot of cues. But also this intersection of racism and the idea that he had to perform certain stereotypes to be a black man. Like, this is not only what a man is supposed to be, but this is what a black man is supposed to be. Here's what I see in the media. Here's what's being reinforced. It's all these stereotypical kind of things. And he says that in his young fifth grader, sixth grader brain, that's kind of what he started living and playing into. And that escalated to the point where he was interacting with gang members and started doing drugs. And that eventually led to the robberies. And it's interesting because in the early stages of interviewing him, I was a little bit obsessed with trying to figure out why he had done this because he's a bright, caring, clever person. And I think for a lot of us, we wonder what leads someone to take these kinds of actions. It's something that these guys think about a lot too. I think in some ways, there's never going to be a satisfying answer. Many of them came into the system as teenagers. So effectively, yes, they're trying to deal with what they did to lead them to this place, but they're also reckoning with the kinds of adults they want to be. I mean, that's a question that all of us deal with, right? Like, what kind of adults do we want to be? Right there, I have to say, one of the most striking things about this, we talk about it's never too late to change. And here are guys, some of them are facing a lot more time in prison, and yet they are faithfully talking about how to change. Mm -hmm. When you were in that prison shooting, and obviously you're focused on the camera work and it's got to be right. There's only so much you can focus on the words. Was there something you didn't discover was amazing until afterwards and you got in the edit room and had a chance to listen to this and watch it in the quiet of the edit room? In the attempt to really create this immersive experience around the program, but in particular, our lead character, Richie, we spent a lot of time with him in these kind of off moments, not necessarily in the context of him leading this group or talking about his message that he was trying to get out there. But the daily moments, the music on the rented prison keyboard that he was creating by himself and also with one of the other guys who's featured in the film, James 88 is his nickname. I just wish that I could tell you, you ain't got to live that way. Yeah, it's belligerent in the hotel room. And I know it's partly my fault that you ever did. I'm mad at you, I'm sad at you, and towards our friends, I feel away. Feel away. Most of all, I'm just mad at the shit we did as kids. Uh, most of all, I'm just something so hot about do that less. Kids. Do that less like a verse and more like I'm belligerent saying. in the hotel room. Like they I know, but when I do it, I feel like I'm gonna I'm start crying. Really, I'm like, trying to cry. Was, like, they, as soon as I started doing it, I felt like I was really yelling at them. Uh, yeah, they could do it. That's why I make cheesy pop music, because I don't like feeling <laughs> shit. I think those moments 
playing them back, I discovered a lot of the themes that the guys were talking about in the context of the group about masculinity and patriarchy and the confines of it coming up in the lyrics of the songs that they were performing and just like playing around with each other in the gym and in the cell with the keyboard. And I, I thought it was a great way to just show how this is not just a thing that appears in the context of this group that Richard is leading and co-facilitating with these other guys, but that it kind of just permeates all parts of their life and their being, even in their off moments and their down moments. I'll say too, and this is just something that I've thought a lot about as well, is there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of focus on... So... CNN produced this film, RBG, Notorious RBG, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's an incredible film. And it illustrates just the legal challenges towards gender equality that have been blown apart in the past 50 years, say, in large part due to her efforts. And I think in the past 100 years, we've thought a lot and talked a lot about what it's like to be a woman in the United States, and that's wonderful. I do think missing in that conversation is this conversation about what is this thing about being a man? What is masculinity about in the United States? And that was one of the real privileges of being part of this production was really hearing from these guys who are thinking through the deep implications of this. I mean, they're thinking through what it means for each one of them, yes, but also what it means for society. And I think that's a conversation that's long overdue for all of us. We're all, we're not culpable for their specific violent acts, but we all participate in the society and help create the culture on a nonpartisan, just a purely cultural and human level. What can we take away from what these guys are teaching us and learning themselves in a very dangerous environment that we might be able to apply in some way to help our society in the bigger national conversation about Americans not getting along with other Americans. Oof. Big. (laughs) (laughs) Having an insight into these guys' world and conversations, I think part of gleaning a lesson from the documentary and from the work that they're doing is A, being able to see individuals, human beings who are incarcerated as opposed to seeing inmates, right? Like these are humans who were and are a part of our society. So I think that's number one is seeing the connectedness and not trying to pretend that it's something separate from the rest of us. None of the things that led these guys to prison and none of the behaviors that they're talking about just exist in a vacuum. I also think it's interesting, like, as we're thinking more largely about the idea of mass incarceration, the idea that this type of work and these types of conversations challenging traditional mainstream ideas of what manhood is, I think it's remarkable that those conversations are happening in prison. You know, this is a place where physical aggression and postures of aggression are the ways that you kind of survive. And so to tell people not only to put those behaviors aside, but something that Richie made a point of saying guys have threatened to fight him over, that he's felt 
at times unsafe about bringing that kind of conversation to the yard, to the group setting, to one-on-one interactions. That's fascinating because it's almost impossible to introduce any story these days without thinking of the context of our world right now and our politics right now. But the whole idea of speaking up when you see something that you think is just wrong or dangerous to others or to the community. And if there were ever a model for courage, it's the guys who are teaching the work of really a feminist author in this prison when the people who don't like what you're saying may really want to hurt you and have the ability to hurt you. That's unbelievable to think about. The scene that stood out to me at the time and just continues to just, I mean, it's the scene that when I tell people about it, they don't even have to see it. People cry just hearing about it was when when 88 tells the story about discovering that he's been serving time with the man who killed his brother. Who here has a brother that they love? A road dog, best friend. So what we've been taught is that if somebody do something to that ride or die, you're supposed to retaliate. My brother was murdered, duct tape and murdered for 10 years I was incarcerated. For 10 years, I would think about if I caught this dude, because they arrested him, found him guilty. He was doing time. And I said, if I catch him, I'm a doing, period. I go to visiting one day, and my mom points to a guy in the visiting room and says, that's him. My life is over, I'm not going home, I gotta kill him. I'm fighting God. Why would you put this in front of me? You know what I gotta do now. And the more I argued with God, the more it became clear. Nobody making me retaliate and get revenge for my brother. This is something that you're choosing. And you can make another choice. So the next morning, I sat with him at breakfast. And I said, man, you killed my brother. And even in that moment, I just want to harm him. But the first thing out of his mouth was, man, I'm sorry for what I took from you. And I forgave him without regard to what people thought of me, without regard to what kind of obligation I made myself feel for the last 10 years. I decided I'm going to break this cycle. I ain't going to kill him. I'm going to live for what I want. My mom, my sister, my freedom. And... I think especially when you're talking about the dangers involved in making any courageous decision, he's personally devastated from learning this. And then he's also trying to figure out personally, socially, culturally what his responsibility needs to be in this moment. And you hear him say, like, if I don't take revenge, like, am I going to be a a mark? And what he really means is he's gotten to a point within himself where he feels like he can live with himself if he forgives this person. But he's not sure that that's a safe decision. He's not sure what the consequences will be if he does not take an extreme action, a violent action. I mean, the stakes couldn't be higher. I mean, very few of us will ever be in that position. The position where not being violent 
exposes you to a great risk, a true great physical risk? Well, very few of us will be in the position of having lost a loved one in that violent way. And then speaking as a woman in this society, yeah, no one's ever suggested to me that I use any kind of physical force to solve any of my problems. And 88 is such a thoughtful person. And getting back to this other question about mass incarceration and about just these decisions that we make as a society, he killed someone when he was 16. And he's not parole eligible for many, many, many years to come. And that's what struck me about that, that these guys were thinking about this, this self-improvement. How am I going to make my life better? With so many years ahead of them in prison, and yet they were still looking at it and doing the hard work. Yeah, and I think 88, James, and I heard this from a couple of the other guys who were also in there for a long time, that it's an exercise for themselves personally to keep themselves on track, but also thinking about the collective and thinking about the other guys they see come in and then leave before they get to leave, that they are having an impact on those guys' lives as well, leading by example, participating in this group and in the exercises. If there is any possible way to take back the things that I've done to all the people I've harmed, including the people I've harmed in, in those robberies, especially them, then I would do it, but obviously there's not. So all one can do once you're here is try to stop stuff like that from happening in the future. So that it's not just their own self-improvement, but making sure that with the harm that they may have committed in the past, that they're making efforts to have a positive impact on the other guys that are around them who may get out sooner and be able to live their lives outside of prison sooner than they are. Hmm. What you just said sort of struck me as like, even in prison, maybe especially in prison, to survive it with your sanity intact and with some hope for a better future, this program is giving these guys a purpose in life, which is beyond themselves. What you're touching on is true. And it's purpose, but it's also a recalibration and re structuring of an entire framework of how you lived your life. And that's a big shift to kind of take everything that you learned and say, this was wrong. This was wrong. And even though society reinforces this at every turn, I know that there's a different way to live. And I have to also do the work of trying to convince others that not only is that acceptable, but it's preferable and it's going to make the world a better place if we all get out of this idea that a man is supposed to be a certain way and that his value comes from certain things, making money, objectifying women, and being the strongest or the most physically dominant person around, that there are other ways to live. One of the points, I think he made it, this idea of some of those very precise terms like objectification, objectifying women, that's not the way these guys speak it's not the way any of us really speak. And he has come up, maybe not totally on his own, but with a vocabulary to communicate these concepts that were developed in part by the feminist author that they're relying on for their basic text, right? But they figured out how to not to dumb it down at all, just to make it conversational and accessible to all of us. 
We probably never heard anybody say anything like, well, he objectifies women, therefore I feel like he's a real man. Nobody says that. But instead of saying objectifying women, what are some of the things that we hear in the community where we're talking about, oh, he's a real one because he objectifies women? He's a pimp. He's a, pimp. He's a player. He got hoes, he got bitches, right? These are some of the ways that we uh, prop a man up. Same thing with violence. We might not say, oh, he's willing to be violent, therefore I respect his manhood. Nobody says that. But what people might say is, oh, he's with the bullshit. He's with it. What else? He got hands. He's with the business, he got hands. He's down. Watch out, he ain't no punk. He's not a punk, or he's Watch a good out, dude. He's not a punk. They call him, him knockout. Ben gave us the 50s one. Ben went straight to the 50s. Watch out, he's not a punk, guys. <laughs> and the money one, I mean, the money one is pretty much self-explanatory. So in our cultures, we could see how we buy into toxic masculinity. We might not use the same language they would use in a video with a bunch of psychologists, but we're familiar with this, with what toxic masculinity is. Yeah, actually, one of the backstories there is that, like any true evangelist, Richie is so convinced in his message. But he told us that the first couple of times that he did those, he brought in these very well-meaning and credentialed academics from like a local college. And I think one of the things that he especially, upon reflection, realized absolutely was not connecting is one of the things that these sociologists were talking about was, why do you assume that when you go out to dinner with your girlfriend, you need to pick up the check? And of course, this just doesn't connect or resonate for a lot of reasons with this group of men. Spell that out for us, just so we're clear on your point. Well, it doesn't connect with them because... I mean, for one thing, they're incarcerated. They can't take anyone on a date. There's a scene in the documentary where one of the guys says, how many of us are being supported by women right now? Hey, how many guys right here are, are providers or protectors? And we're men, right? How many of us are providing or protecting? How many of us are being provided for by women? I think just something to think about. How many of us have money that we can call people with because women in our lives are putting money on phone cards? How many of us have money that we can use to buy the things that we need within the prison facility? So, you know, those are two reasons why it really doesn't resonate. But for Richie, part of the lesson was trusting then his co-facilitators who were telling him, this is not landing. <laughs> you got to try something else. So actually, the session that we were able to capture was really sort of the second or third iteration of Richie really trying something new to try to get this point that he understands so well that he can teach it to get other people who are just new to it to hear it. Lily Duran is a producer and editor. Is there anything that we have not talked about or anything that struck you that you want to know more about? His whole message of success stories was to have integrity and to embrace one's humanity to be their own true person. And so how do you do this when the whole system doesn't see you that way? And that's kind of what Contessa was talking about when seeing them as humans who are incarcerated instead of just inmates. And then bringing it outside of the documentary, how do we find the courage to be who we are all of the time? I mean, I'm in some ways just channeling Richie here. I suspect he would say that a lot of his courage and persistence comes from the supportive community that he has. Absolutely from 
Taina, who is just ferocious and amazing. Taina's his wife. Taina's his wife. But I think that's an excellent drawing back for all of us. I mean, what you sort of see a little bit of, but maybe not a ton of, is that it's a struggle. I think it's a struggle for all of us, even in the best circumstances, to be true to our best impulses. One of the characters, Hugo, he's short in stature. He's five foot one, five foot two, and was born with cerebral palsy. So the last day that I was in the facility, he was like, I really want these guys to know that this is a struggle. And they look up to us as we've got it all figured out. And we're trying, you know, we're trying and struggling just like they are. And he said that Right before he was coming to the session, he was on his cell block and this guy came up and started rubbing the top of his head, kind of like giving him a hard time, he felt like, for being small. And he said, it was really hard for me. My first reaction was to want to fight this guy for probably a lot of reasons and not just a sense of masculinity, but probably, you know, out of a sense of I want to make sure that I'm safe, that this is where this treatment stops and doesn't go any further. And so I think there's glory in the struggle, right? There's glory and beauty in the struggle towards doing the things that you feel like are right. And so I think for all of us, you work towards the more perfect vision of what you want to see in the world, right? Well, listen, Emma Lacey Bordeaux, Contessa Gales, producers, editors of The Feminist on Cell Block Y. Thank you both so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Mike. Well, here's a wonderful postscript to that conversation. Richie, the prime mover of that feminism rehab program, is now out of prison, and he has already launched a record label. He calls it Question Culture. In a recent interview, he said the goal is, quote, to make social justice as ubiquitous to youth culture as hip-hop is. He goes on to ask, how dope would it be if social justice was just a part of hip-hop, an element that always came with it in the most subtle and accessible ways? The Feminist on Cell Block Y. Again, you can watch the documentary on CNN.com or CNN Go. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I hope you'll subscribe for free if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen to the episodes on my website, www.wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe, the episodes are delivered automatically to your device. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter by listening to amazing people share the bounty of their wisdom and experience. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran. I'm Michael Shoulder. I appreciate you listening to Wavemaker Conversations.